Welcome back to Women's Wealth, The Middle Way, the show that answers your questions about work, money, and family. My name is Susan McGlory Michael, and I am the CEO and founder of Glen Eagle, a wealth management firm in New Jersey. In honor of World Teachers Day this October, we at Glen Eagle wanted to take the time to honor one of the most important yet unappreciated sometimes occupations. I actually began my career as a kindergarten and first grade teacher. Today, we have the gift of being able as teachers to set the mindset and character of children in their formative years and act as role models to change students' lives. Today, we're going to talk with someone who experienced when a gunman opened fire at Sandy Hook Elementary School in December 2012. Caitlin Roar DeBellis jumped into action. She managed to cram her entire class of 15 first graders and herself into the three by four foot bathroom inside her classroom to protect them from the attacker. While keeping them calm and quiet and eventually unharmed, since the tragedy, she has gone on to create what we know today as Classes for Classes, a nonprofit dedicated to fostering kindness in schools. Elementary school classes sponsor gifts for other classes, such as field trips and art supplies, and the receiving classes pledge to pay forward for another classroom, creating a domino effect of kindness. In 2003, she was chosen as Glamour Woman of the Year due to her efforts to make the world a kinder place. Caitlin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Caitlin, I I don't even know how to begin an interview like this. It's heart-wrenching. When was it that you first realized on that horrific day the danger the classroom was in, and how did you think and react so quickly? What was going on in your mind while you were huddling all those precious lives into a bathroom? December 14, 2012 was a day like any other. It was also a Friday. It was, as you know, about two weeks shy of Christmas. And for first graders, that is probably the most exciting time in the year. They're so just filled with such a sense of wonder about the anticipating holidays that are, that are coming. And so the excitement and the sense of wonder in our classroom were truly just palpable. We just feel it. And so it really made what happened at around 9.30 that morning that much more horrific because it was such a joy-filled time. My students and I were in the first classroom of our school, so we were not at all removed. Um, You know, I've heard over the years that reports of, you know, teachers didn't know what it was or they weren't sure. Was something falling? Was, you know, did something drop? You know, for myself, my students and I were seated about 15 feet from where the shooter began uh, shooting his way into our school. And so, There was not a moment of pause or hesitation, not a second of wondering what that was. I knew immediately that it was a weapon, that it was a gun, um, and that it was coming into our school. Um, You know, my first thought being someone who lived through, you know, the memories of Columbine as a high school student, being in high school at that time, my first thought was, oh, my God, that's happening here. How could that be happening here? You know, Sandy Hook Elementary was this beautiful idea elementary school, you know, set in this beautiful setting, such a, such a place of love and friendship and open arms. You know, I was always so honored to, to work there. And so when that shooting began at 9.30 a.m. on December 14th, you know, knowing that that was a gun that was in imminent proximity to my students and myself, I knew our only option was to hide. Um, I knew there wasn't time to run. 
I knew that our standard lockdown drill of crouching in front of our cubbies certainly was not going to help us. Um, and so our option was hiding. And if we were going to do that, the only option was this impossibly small bathroom in the back left-hand corner of our classroom. It was a single occupancy stall built for a very tiny child. Until that day, I had never been inside of it to use it. It was just too uncomfortably small for a grown adult to fit. But on that day and in that that moment, that split-second moment, if that was the only decision that had to be made. If we were going to attempt to survive uh, what was coming for us, we had to hide, and we had to hide fast, and that's what we did. We squeezed our 15 bodies. One of my students was absent that day, so 14 of my students and myself, we squeezed ourselves into, into that bathroom and closed the door and locked it, and just figuratively and literally, we, we prayed. We just prayed that the gunman wouldn't find us and that we would we would make it through, we would be found in that hiding place. What what a miracle that you were all spared and also that you thought quickly, what a gift that you had the intuition to do that and and what a blessing for those young lives, those those children that can now go on. But we often think about and pray for those that didn't make it. I think that incident affected not just your beautiful part of the world, but I think the entire country was just frozen. And I think you're right. In times like that, you just turn to prayer. You know, when you go through a horrific event like that, you as an individual had to get up the next day, which I'm not sure how you did that, but then you were inspired to create classes for classes, making such an impact on children today. Can you tell me when that occurred to you to do that? Was that part of your healing process, or how did that come to flourishing. Sometimes become frozen when we go through that, or you can become a victim of an incident. The incident can be a persecutor for someone throughout their life, but you really took that horrific day and changed it for good. Can you talk a little bit about Classes for Classes and what inspired you to start that? I think for myself, I mean, you touched on it briefly. I think that you're absolutely correct that in the days and the weeks following, you know, I was evidently just beside myself. I couldn't wrap my head around what had happened, and I was so intently focused on answering this long list of questions that all circled around why. And they were, why did this happen? Why our school? Why innocent, beautiful lives, most of which I knew very well? You know, why did this happen? And what I came to realize after living this way of trying to answer these questions and, you know, beating my head against the wall, metaphorically speaking, I realized that I was never going to answer those. You know, I'm never going to answer why. Not then, not now, um, not tomorrow. It's never, those questions are never going to be answered. And that instead I really needed to make a shift in my energy to focus on questions that could be answered. And for myself, there were two questions that I knew I could answer and that I also knew I had to. And the first was, how do I make sure this day doesn't define my students and I? And the second was, how do we get our control back? Because our control had absolutely been taken from us on that day. And so those two questions really became my guiding light, and they drove me in everything I did. You know, first it was just getting out of bed in the morning, then it was finally leaving my home for the first time by myself, then it was driving my car by myself, then it was going somewhere in public. It was taking really baby steps, but they eventually led me on this path that eventually led me to found classes for classes. I think that so many of us in our lives, we endure something really hard, really tragic, really terrible, and we spend so much 
of our energy intently focused on questions that we are never going to answer. And we forget that there are so many questions that we can and that there's so much power in that. And so for myself, the day I realized that, the day I recognized that, was really the day I got a small piece of myself back because I realized that I didn't have to be defined by that darkness and that I didn't have to be defined by the actions of that monster, that I could instead choose what the rest of my life and my students' lives was going to look like. And ultimately that meant founding classes for classes. Probably about a month after the tragedy, I, you know, I had conquered a lot of the small goals I had set for myself. Again, I had gone in public by myself. I was driving my car again. I was staying home alone, things that seemed impossible on December 15th, um, the day after the tragedy. And so I thought, okay, what next? And my kids and I had been receiving all of these gifts from around the world. People just kept sending stuff to our school and to my students. And I realized probably about mid-January, maybe a little before, that I needed it to be a teachable moment. I couldn't just have my kids thinking that they were getting all these gifts and that that was it, that that was the end of the story. I needed my kids to understand that the, the whole notion of paying it forward, that when someone does for you, you then do for someone else, that when you are given to, that's your responsibility to give back. That's the way our world you know, is supposed to work. And so one day I decided it was the day that we were going to talk about this lesson, and we did that after our lunchtime, before our recess. And my kids were just so excited by this prospect of helping someone else, of sending someone else gifts, of making someone else feel loved and supported and connected. And it really was, as an educator, it was a light bulb moment. You know, my kids, not even a month prior, had lived through the worst evil that that you could ever see. And yet, here they were, sitting in front of me, smiling and laughing and happy and hopeful about helping someone else, about giving back. And so both of my questions were answered on that day in a small way. You know, I still had a ways to go, but, you know, my two questions were, how do I make sure this day doesn't define us and how do we get our control back? Evil can't ever define you if you choose to focus on the positive. And My students and I absolutely got a piece of our control back on that day when we decided that we weren't just going to get, we were going to give. So that was the spark, I guess you could say. That was the catalyst that led to Classes for Classes forming. And a month later in February, we had our first board meeting as an official 501c3 nonprofit. I think that for myself, it was absolutely my healing. It was absolutely exactly what I needed to do in the days and the weeks following December 14th. I needed, I needed to put my energy into action, and that's what happened. What an amazing role model you are for others who have gone through tragedy. And, you know, every day when we get up, it's, it's a blessing because we're, it's a new day. But we don't know what's in store. You not only took classes for classes and I, in my mind, it sounds like you empowered not only yourself, but all those little individual lives that were changed that day forever. But you went on to do something even greater than that. You just kept going. You've written a book called Choosing Hope about moving forward after life's darkest moments. So you continued to give back when you chose to write the book Choosing Hope. Can you share with us a little bit about that journey of writing the book? Definitely. I think for myself, what happened first, far before the book, I was asked about a year after the tragedy if I would come to a conference and share my story, if I would 
prepare remarks for about an hour, and I would climb up on a stage and share with an audience my experience, my takeaways, the lessons learned, you know, living through and surviving Sandy Hook. And I accepted that with a bit of trepidation because I thought, well, you know, what am I going to say and what do they want to hear and is it going to be received the way I'm intending? Talked to those that I loved and decided that I should do it. And so I spent a lot of time writing and, you know, a lot of writing is required to speak for an hour. (laughs) People don't realize that. um, And so I started writing and really just thinking about, you know, what would I say and what would the structure be and, you know, what are the key points or the key takeaways? What is it that I that I want to convey to this audience. And after a lot of work, you know, I had what I thought was exactly what I wanted the audience to take away. And so I went and I spoke, and it was in Pennsylvania, and it was the Pennsylvania School Board Association, and there were about a 1,000 superintendents from across the state of Pennsylvania, not intimidating at all, and um, (laughs) climbed up on that stage after Captain Phillip, who... They just made like a really big movie about him with Mel Gibson. and But anywho, I followed him. So again, no pressure. And after I spoke, this line formed, you know, as, as usually does at a conference. People want to thank you or say hello or tell you something about themselves. And a few people in, a woman came up and she said, you know, I'm so happy that I was here today. I'm so glad you were here. But more importantly, I'm really grateful that my best friend was here. She's a few people in line behind me. And, you know, she can't hear us, she said, but she was just diagnosed with terminal cancer, and she's been having a really hard time, and um, I'm sorry. And being here today, I know it's going to help her because you've reminded her that it's a choice, that it is a choice how we react to the bad stuff. And um, I'm just really appreciative that you've given her that hope and that tool that she can, you know, really look to now. And it was that moment that I realized, okay, this is why I was asked to be here. This is the message I was supposed to convey. I, I've helped that one woman, and if that's all I've done, then that's enough. And sure enough, since then, I've gone on to accept lots of speaking engagements because of how touched and moved I was by that response at the first one. And I've met people all around the world, and they've said to me, You know, my son committed suicide, my daughter overdosed on heroin, my husband left me, you name it. You know, they've shared it with me, and they've all said, thank you for reminding me it's a choice. Thank you for reminding me that I don't have to be defined by this darkness, that I can go on and find the light. And so the reason I wrote Choosing Hope, really long uh, way to get to this answer, is that if I, when I was approached about the prospect of writing a book, um, because I did not seek it out on my own, I thought, you know what, if I can reach one person outside of that audience, at this point I've spoken to just about 200,000 people in person, and I thought if I could reach one person outside of that audience, sitting in their home or sitting in a hospital or wherever they may be that I can't physically speak to, then I absolutely need to write this book because I really, truly believe in the power of connectedness and understanding that suffering and pain and hardships, they're universal. And when we share about them and we connect with one another about them, that is where the healing begins. And for me, that has been huge in my journey. And so I just want to share it with others. Caitlin, I I can't thank you enough for sharing with us that you are so right. It is a choice how we respond to those dark moments. And yes, I guess some days it's just one day at a time, one hour at a time. And it's also for fellow women helping that one person at a time. Your book, Choosing Hope, is actually a gift to us all. And your being 
on our podcast today is such a gift. So thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today's episode of Women's Wealth, The Middle Way. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or the podcast app and follow us on SoundCloud, Podbean, and womensradios.com for new episodes every other Wednesday. Thank you again.